Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peach Street Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. We're looking this morning at verses 32 through chapter 16, verse 12. Matthew 15, in reading in verse 32. Hear the Word of God. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him... They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it's evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our teaching, uh, our attention to the teaching, rather, not of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but of the Word of God, we pray, uh, Lord, that you would give us the perception that we need to understand and to believe. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Very little that we know. Do we know because we have discovered it ourselves? There are, of course, things that we have learned and known through our own experience, through our own research, through first-hand acquaintance 
with what it is that we know. But a lot, in fact, most of what we know, we know because someone has told us. For example, uh, you may have some idea what the weather's going to be tomorrow. Well, it's not because you have discerned it yourself, more likely or not. You've seen it online or seen it on television, someone telling you what the forecast is. Or maybe you took your car into the shop and they said you need a doohickey for your engine and it's going to cost you $750. Now, you don't know what a doohickey is, uh, perhaps, but you're trusting that the mechanic does and he says this is what you need. Or your doctor tells you that this is what's wrong with you and you need to take this medicine. Well, you may be only passingly familiar with the condition and you don't know the chemical makeup of the uh, substance you are about to ingest, uh, but you trust that your doctor does. Well, there was an old Amy Grant song from years ago that had a catchy line in it. you got to know who to, who not to listen to. There's a lot of truth in that. For example... You wouldn't necessarily want your doctor giving you advice about parts for your engine. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily uh, want to go to your mechanic for the forecast for tomorrow or three days from now and so on. Uh, you got to know who to and who not to listen to for the right information. Well, that's a lesson that Jesus wants to impress on his disciples and to impress on us as we study this passage here today. As we look at the passage, it really breaks down into three encounters that Jesus had with different groups of people. So let's organize it uh, for studying it this morning in that way. The first encounter Jesus had was with this crowd that we read about, the first part of our text, where we see Jesus' compassion on those in need, particularly those who are hungry. Uh, Jesus calls his disciples and says, I have compassion on the crowd because they, they've been with me three days now and have nothing to eat. And I want to send them away hungry so I don't want them to collapse on the way home uh, for lack of something to eat. Now, there are those who are of a more critical bent towards Scripture who would say, well, see, you have this, this feeding of the 4,000. Well, what that is basically is just a, a, a duplicate, uh, a variant of the feeding of the 5,000. It's just the same story, somehow made it in again. Well, we reject that view of Scripture uh, and reject that understanding of this parable. Why would someone think that? Well, for one reason is the similarities, and we'll look at that in just a minute, but perhaps the most baffling reason uh, for us uh, why this would appear again has to do with the reaction of the disciples who ask in verse 33, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Didn't Jesus just take care of that not long ago? Wouldn't they have remembered Jesus' ability to do that? Why, why, if this was happening again, would they ask such a question? Well, there's several responses to that uh, that, that could explain what's going on here. One is to make up the crowd. Remember last time we looked at how Jesus was ministering among Gentiles and he still is. This is a Gentile crowd, and it could be that the disciples, seeing Jesus feed the 5,000 and seeing the overtones that that had of the Messianic banquet uh, among Jews, uh, was something that they simply couldn't conceive of taking place among Gentiles. Now, yes, Jesus could go out, Jesus could go out and give, give strength to lame legs and sight to blind eyes, cast a demon out. But would he do something that so typified the, the, the blessings of the Messiah to Israel? Would he do such a thing among the Gentiles? Well, as it turned out, he did. But maybe that was something so far outside their thinking. They're thinking, surely Jesus wouldn't do that kind of thing with Gentiles. 
Another reason they may uh, have responded the way they did, you read of the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, and Jesus shortly afterward rebukes the crowd because they're continuing to follow him, not because of the spiritual significance of the miracle, but simply for the bread. And they want to eat again. And uh, maybe with that rebuke in mind, the disciples had second thoughts about bringing up the possibility of such a miracle again. Or... Uh, we have to recognize that we should never be surprised by the capacity of fallen human beings for unbelief, uh, for forgetfulness. Uh, and yes, they had witnessed that other miracle, uh, but perhaps a lack of perception about the real nature of it, uh, combined with this pressing problem upon them, made them genuinely concerned about what they were going to do to provide. Would Jesus do the same miracle again? Uh, what was the real significance of that? We, we see, as we read along in our text, how slow they can be to really pick up on who Jesus is and what's really going on here. Uh, those are some that are suggested as I've been reading this and thinking about it. I think it's possible, too, uh, to misread words on, on a page. Uh, as we said with Jesus' response to the woman with the Gentile woman with the uh, demon-possessed daughter, how are we to understand what the disciples said? Were they, you know, were they saying, well, Jesus, how are we going to do this again? Or were they saying, come on, Jesus, how are we going to feed this big crowd? As in, come on, Jesus, do it again. We've seen you do it once. Come on, Jesus, kind of a wink, nudge. How are we going to feed this crowd? Can't say that dogmatically. I don't know. Maybe they said that with full memory of how they fed a crowd of probably 15,000 people, 5,000 men alone uh, earlier, they may be kind of saying, you know, Jesus, remember how you did it? How are we going to do this? Well, we know how Jesus is going to do this. I don't know. Uh, that may have been behind their words as well. At any rate, we do have this miracle, and people have questioned it for the response of the disciples, but also on the basis of the similarities. But those similarities are very superficial. I mean, if you really start to look at this, there are a lot of things that are different. For one thing, it's made up of a crowd of Gentiles. Uh, for another, given the region where Jesus was, for another, uh, the, the, the sheer number obviously is different, 4,000 men as opposed to 5,000. The amount left over was different. Uh, even the word that was used for the basket that they collected the leftovers in is a different word. Uh, there are a lot of actual differences here that distinguish it from the feeding of the 5,000. However, the decisive a uh, bit of evidence uh, that separates it from the feeding of the 5,000, that there were, in fact, two healings, or rather two uh, miracles of feeding, uh, comes later. It is worth noticing, though, before we move on from this, that um, both Moses and Elijah performed two separate feeding miracles, and Jesus does as well. But we see here Jesus' compassion. He, even on these Gentiles, he has compassion on them. And in this miraculous way of multiplying the food, he provides for them. And we do see there Jesus' compassion on those who are in need, even those who are physically hungry, but again, perceiving beyond the outward nature, those who are spiritually hungry, that just as Jesus is able to feed crowds miraculously physical food, so those, ultimately, all of us who are hungry spiritually, hungry for the God we were made to know, hungry for the God from whom sin has separated us, Jesus is the one who meets that need. Jesus is the bread of life for our souls. Again, the uh, definitive exposition of that is provided by John in his gospel in John chapter 6. 
So we see the compassion of Jesus for people who are hungry, people who are in need. Unlike the other crowd, this crowd had been with him three days. They'd been with him a longer time, not just following him around the lake like the first crowd, meeting up for one day, but had actually been with Jesus, hearing his teaching, seeing the miracles for three days. So we see the compassion of Jesus. Second, we see the sternness of Jesus toward persistent, hostile unbelief. We see this in in, uh, his encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees. We read in 39 that he got in the boat, went back to the region of Magadan, and as soon as he's there, as soon as he gets back in Jewish territory, he's met with what? The Inquisition. Hostility. Pharisees and Sadducees arrive, and they have questions for Jesus, not because they're looking for information, but because they want to trip him up. Their questioning is as an expression of their hostility. They, they, they want to expose him. They want to undo him. And so to test Jesus, they ask him, verse 1, to show them a sign from heaven. Now, this has happened before. And Jesus responds uh, by rebuking them and by refusing their request. Look at what he says. He says, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather. In the morning, it will be stormy, the sky is red. You know, it's... People, before we had satellites and uh, the kind of weather forecasting we have today, uh, relied on uh, uh, close observance of the patterns of, of nature and of the weather. And they could see things that would indicate what the weather might be. Uh, certainly sailors have used that for many years. In fact, this very one is encapsulate, encapsulated in the, in the saying... Uh, uh, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailor take warning. Uh, the very thing Jesus is talking about here, the pattern of the sky indicating what the weather uh, might, may well be. Well, Jesus rebukes him. He's saying, you can do this and you can, you can check the, the evidence above you and, and kind of have an idea what the weather's going to be, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. In other words, you're able to, to figure out what the weather's going to be, but you can't see what's going on all around you. You cannot see the evidence of the kingdom of heaven right in your midst. You don't have the perception to see, Jesus says, who I am and the significance of my coming for Israel, for you. It's right here in front of you, and you, you miss it. You're blind to it. You don't see it. They wanted some sign from heaven, some conclusive uh, forever doubt-banishing evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Make some sign appear in the sky. Some incontrovertible proof that Jesus is who he said he is. And what Jesus says is, verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And earlier Jesus had explained that. We don't have the explanation here, but... As Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man would be three days, three nights in the ground. Basically, Jesus is pointing to his own resurrection from the dead as the sign that he was, in fact, the Messiah, that they would crucify him, but that the grave would not hold him, the grave would not keep him, and so he left them and departed. What's going on here? Jesus rebukes them for their blindness, and not just blindness, but a, but a persistent, hostile antagonism toward Jesus. A refusal to acknowledge the signs they had already seen. The, the, the refusal to receive and accept the abundant evidence they already had 
They want more. But you know what the problem is? No matter what Jesus did, it would never be enough. Because the problem was not a lack of evidence. The problem was their hearts were dead. The need was not more evidence. The need was not for better evidence. The need was for a new heart. And so even if Jesus should unveil his heavenly, divine, radiant glory before them, as he did before the disciples in the transfiguration, they'd have some explanation for it, some reason why this couldn't be, why he wasn't the Messiah. The problem wasn't the evidence. The problem was the deadness of their hearts and their hostility toward God. Dear friends, what a warning this is. Uh, for those who, uh, who from Missouri, show me state, you know, show me, prove it to me. Uh, for all of us uh, who, who, who believe seeing is believing. Lord, just, you know, if I just had conclusive proof that you existed, if I just had conclusive evidence that Jesus was in fact the Savior, how much more evidence do you need? We read earlier, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God surrounding you day and night is the testimony of God to Himself. We have this book, this wonderful, magnificent book written over so many years by so different, many different people, and yet there is a unity to it all pointing to Jesus. Dear friend, the problem is not that God has not provided the evidence, or that he needs to provide better evidence, or clearer evidence, or more conclusive proof. The problem is you. It's me. It's our unbelieving hearts. And even as believers, our prayers, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's not gaining better evidence. It's overcoming the weight, the, the, the downward pull of our hearts, and even the residual effects of sin in our hearts, and overcoming the blindness of our spiritual You see, that's the problem with these Pharisees and Sadducees. It wasn't lack of evidence. It was the deadness of their hearts. But then following from that is Jesus' encounter with his disciples. And this is really the the culmination of this text. Really what it comes down to. Because Jesus has interacted with the crowds. Jesus has interacted here with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And now Jesus is in the boat. Notice they just returned to Jewish territory. He's met with opposition. What do they do? He leaves. Which itself is a symbolic judgment in a sense. He gets back in the boat. And they go back over to the other side. Verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring bread. They'd forgotten to bring more. Mark tells us that they, they did have one loaf, which probably was not very much. And uh, here were here were twelve men who were faced with the prospect of an involuntary fast, uh, and they were concerned about that. You know, who was it who forgot to bring the extra bread, maybe left over from the feeding of the four thousand? Um, well, and and while their their minds are occupied with the bread, Jesus says to them, "Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees." And they catch that, they hear that, but they're not sure what it means. Verse 7, they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Well, he said that because we forgot to bring the bread. And they begin debating what Jesus meant by beware, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, and so Jesus, we, we read in verse 8, Jesus, aware of this, well, he's in this boat with him. He can't hardly miss the fact that they're beginning to discuss well, what did Jesus mean Jesus says to them, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact you have no bread? 
Uh, here we see, if we saw Jesus' compassion on those in need, if we see Jesus' sternness with those who persist in unbelief, we see here Jesus' patience with those who are slow to learn. Why are you talking about the fact you don't have any bread? You know, two, two different lines. They're concerned about their stomachs. Jesus is concerned about their souls. They're worried about who forgot the bread. Jesus is saying, who out there is teaching false teaching that would endanger your souls? Why are you discussing that you don't have any bread? Not, verse 9, a piercing question. Do you not yet perceive? That's a, a painful question. And that's a scary question. Because that was precisely the problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They didn't perceive. And Jesus says to his own disciples who have been with him, who have been learning from him, who have been witnessing his miracles, hearing his teaching, do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet perceive? And then he says in verse 9, don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? And the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered. And that's the other decisive indication that there were two miracles, not one feeding, that Jesus himself distinguishes between the two. Don't you remember the feeding of the 5,000? How many baskets were left over? Twelve. If you are a scholar of the Bible, if you read your Bible, 12, 12, 12, does that number ring a bell? It should. That's a significant biblical number. Whether that was intentional, I think Jesus indicates here that it was. Some argue whether that was intentional or not, but in the Bible, what's recorded usually is intentional, and Jesus draws attention. How many baskets were left over? 12 to Jews. How many were left over for the Gentiles? Seven. It wasn't that were, there were 11 left over and, and, and 4 left over. Two biblically significant numbers, 12 baskets with the Jews, perhaps indicating Jesus uh, ministering to Israel, to the 12 tribes, and, and uh, fulfillment of the Messianic promise. Seven. What's number, what, what does the number seven represent in the Scriptures? Perfection, completeness, the whole. Remember what Paul said in, in Romans how great uh, will be the joy of the church when all of the fullness of the Gentiles are brought in and then the fullness of Israel. The completion of the church. Well, the inclusion, even in that foretaste of it, beginning to bring in the Gentiles, was, was, a, was a hint of that inclusion, that bringing to completeness the church. Not just the Jews, but the gospel for the Gentiles. And then Paul goes on to say how, uh, how that's to provoke Israel uh, to envy in hopes that they, as they saw the Gentiles enjoying the covenant blessings, that they themselves would come and believe. But the inclusion of the Gentiles is hinted at here. Seven baskets left over. Jesus points out how many were twelve, how many were seven. Verse 11, how is it you failed to understand that I didn't speak about bread? We weren't talking about bread. I don't care whether you forgot the bread or not. I can always make more bread. He's amply demonstrated. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so then they understood Jesus was talking about not, not leaven, but their teaching. Now, very briefly, the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, were very different. It's almost strange that Jesus would lump them together the way that he does, as if they had some monolithic teaching, because they really didn't. Two very different groups. The Pharisees 
you could say, were the, uh, the fundamentalists, the, 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 the conservatives. Uh, the danger with the Pharisees was that they embraced all of God's word. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the spirit realm. But they added to it. They added to God's word, as we've seen, even, even supplanting God's word with their own tradition. The Sadducees, another uh, group uh, in, in Israel, were not exactly atheists. Secularists might be a better word. Now, they adhered to the five books of Moses, but that was it. Uh, didn't receive anything beyond that. They really did not believe in a resurrection. Remember how they tried to torment Jesus with, you know, if a woman's married seven times, who would her husband be in the resurrection? Uh, didn't really believe in the spiritual realm and angelic beings. They tended to be much more involved politically, where the Pharisees were more separatists. Uh, many of them were uh, in, the, in the priestly ranks. Two very different groups, uh, but they tended to take away from the Word of God, whereas the Pharisees tended to add to it. The Pharisees were kind of the fundamentalists. The uh, Sadducees, we could say, were kind of the moderates, maybe even the liberals, uh, much more worldly, much more intertwined, trying to get favor with Rome, work the system, whereas the Pharisees tended to be separate from and pursue their religious studies, kind of the fortress mentality. Uh, certainly, you could, uh, you could single each one out and say, beware of this tendency of the Pharisees to add laws to God's laws. Laws that are made by man. Beware of that. Beware the tendency of the Sadducees to be minimalists, to shrink down God's word, to excuse all kinds of behavior that was contrary to God's word. But he says, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Together, what was it? Well, it goes back to that skepticism toward Jesus. That, indica- that, that, that tendency to require proof. That refusal to believe what was right there in front of them all along. That, uh, that, that skeptical, hostile uh, lack of perception about what was going on with Jesus. In fact, uh, a tendency to be antagonistic toward it. And as Jesus sees his disciples more concerned about bread than they were the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus, and arguing over it, Jesus gives them, this warning. Beware of the teaching. Now, Jesus calls it leaven. Why? Leaven, of course, was the leftover dough from the previous uh, bread that was made, and it's used to put into the new dough to help it rise. But what is it about leaven? Well, leaven works uh, imperceptibly, very quiet, behind the scenes, not noticed, but it works Powerfully, It transforms the dough into something different so that it can rise. It works its way through the whole and affects the whole. And Jesus is saying by his use of the word leaven that this teaching, this, this lack of perception, this hostility, uh, this being blinded to just the physical uh, is like that leaven. It has a tendency to work imperceptibly and yet powerfully in people and in groups of people. And Jesus says to watch, be on guard against it, and beware of it. Later, in chapter 23, he would say, now they sit in Moses' seat, listen to them when they teach the law, when they teach God's word, but don't do what they do. Because they teach, but they don't walk. They, they don't do as they say, not as they do, Jesus says about them. But beware, he says, watch out for this secular, blind, legalistic, Mindset that rejects Jesus. And that's the lesson that we have here in this passage. Uh, that Jesus shows compassion to us in our need. 
He is quite stern toward this persistent unbelief, and we need to be careful that that same secular, skeptical, sophisticated spirit, the spirit of the world, doesn't slowly, gradually, imperceptibly creep into our heart and dull or diminish our faith, our trust in the goodness and in the power in the person of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these passages here before us this morning, what they reveal to us of our Savior. Father, we recognize that we, uh, we have more in common with the Pharisees and Sadducees than we might like to think. Uh, Father, we live in a day when it's um, not only acceptable, but uh, in some circles at least even uh, approved to be of a skeptical mind. Uh, to hold things at arm's length, uh, not to uh, not to jump in with both feet. But Father, where Jesus is concerned, we dare not have that attitude. Lord, you have given us abundant evidence. But Lord, we need believing hearts. We pray, Father, that you would give us hearts to see Jesus for who he is and to believe in him. And Father, help us even as we fight against that leaven of unbelief, of skepticism in our own hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name, for his sake, for our own. Amen.